You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, August 24th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Cara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. And we are being joined by a special guest rogue this week, Iran Segev. Iran, welcome back to the SGU. Thanks very much for inviting me, Steve. And Iran is from the Australian Skeptics, but at this moment, you're not in Australia. You're actually here in Connecticut. Visiting. I am. Okay. Um, and you came to the U.S. chasing the, uh, the solar eclipse, right? I did. I joined a group headed by uh, Pamela Gay and Fraser Kane. We... Uh, met in St. Louis about, um, I think it was something like a hundred <laughs> of us. And then like a we, musical. <laughs> and then on the day of the eclipse, we drove down to Carbondale, southern Illinois, and uh, watched the eclipse there. You were there with with uh, Pamela? Uh, sort of. So we were in two different I locations. I almost cried. <laughs> well, I almost so. cried for Pamela. It was, to me, it was a near worst case scenario for eclipse viewing. Well, it's it's Pamela's fault, actually, because it turns out that Pamela, this was her first, uh, her fourth attempt at a total solar eclipse. No! For a total for a total time of about nine minutes, and so far she's zero seconds for nine minutes. Wow. It just so, got, I didn't think it could get worse. It was literally her fourth attempt, and she, oh, that sounds like yeah. my luck with astronomical Okay, wait, wait, wait. Tell us what happened. So, <laughs> yeah, but, right. I was, I was <laughs> the, but I was in the other bus. We went to some open field a couple of miles, only a couple of miles away, and I got to see all of totality. About three minutes before totality, the clouds cleared for the final time, and we had all of totality. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. Well, let me tell you what I saw on TV. Looking at Pamela, you had a really a pretty good view of the uh, of the you know the totality approaching, and then a few minutes before the clouds start coming in, then then it all disappeared for like a minute or two, and then it came back right before you know right before totality. It was just you know the edge was disappearing, disappearing, and then right pretty much at the moment that totality hit, or a few seconds before, the clouds came in in force, completely obscuring the entire thing, and we're waiting. And waiting because we knew we had what that that was it. Cannondale had like the the longest totality, like a uh, so two two and a half minutes, minutes forty seconds. Like two minutes forty seconds. Yeah, and then it cleared pretty much at the precise moment that totality ended. It cleared, <laughs> and it was like <laughs> you know uh. I, you know you seeing the build up and the and the after effects are I'm sure are fun. But missing, but totality is the nut. That's it. That's what you came to see, and that was completely wiped away, wiped away. And but the timing was like a big smack in the face. Sorry, well, I would not. I would not be stoic about that. I would be like, "What <laughs> the f just happened?" How yeah, so I think, you wouldn't be the I only person to cry. She's just used to it. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. So a famous uh. essayist. I know. I sent the essay to you, Evan, mm-hmm. and you read it before we both got to view it. Um, she once said that. Partial eclipse has no relation to a total eclipse. A partial eclipse relates to a total eclipse like flying in an airplane relates to falling out of one. Yes. <laughs> wow. That's very good. It's a world of difference. It's so different. And, you know, I had people sending in. So I hosted a live stream with National Geographic and a um, an astronaut named Terry 
Terry Vertz. He's a former space station commander. And he had never seen a total eclipse from Earth. He had seen them from space, which is basically looking down and seeing the moon's shadow, which is pretty crazy. But it's still nothing like – I mean, it's crazy because he's in space. <laughs> but it's still nothing like experiencing totality on the ground. And so we were in it together. You know, and we had no idea how we were going to react. I burst into tears. He got emotional, but, you know, he didn't cry. I mean, it was really for me – a life-changing experience to be able to see that. And I got multiple people writing in that said, you know, when it happened for me, like let's say they were in Texas or something, when when I saw the eclipse, I cried. And I was thinking, wow, like when I saw the partial eclipse, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then when totality happened, I like, it was like insanity. It was absolute insanity. There was a hole in the sky. There was a 360-degree sunset. It was navy blue outside. It was a color I'd never seen. Birds started freaking out. All the people on the cliffside next to us were losing their minds and, like, howling and screaming and crying and laughing. And I didn't want to make any of my friends who didn't make it out feel bad for it, but I wanted to impress upon them how important it is for them to see it in 2024. Oh, yeah, you you made me feel like shit. I regretted it. I didn't it. mean to. <laughs> I regretted it even more than I had. I was like, you know, well, how the hell did I miss this? And it, there's nothing that's going to stop me from seeing it in 2024 except death. Oh, I'm literally ready to buy my ticket to Argentina to see it next year. 2019. Like, or, yeah, in 2019. Like, I, I think I'm going to become one of those crazy eclipse chasers, you guys. I'm converted. What about you, Evan? Wow. Oh, my gosh. If I didn't yeah. have to hold down a real daytime job, I would be there with you. And I, I would chase these things all over the planet, no doubt about it. No, people and people I was I was with were also quite emotional, quite emotional. Yeah. I, I, I held it together, barely. Um, I, 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 but your wife cried. Oh, yes, she absolutely did. <laughs> I didn't. I I didn't hold back. I um, I cried. This was my second eclipse, which which is a bit of a problem because you see, I think it's easy to stop at one. You say, okay, I've I've experienced this now, but now having travelled this far for a second one, I'm not sure I can stop at two. I think I now need to start mm-hmm. chasing those things. But even just hearing you describe this now, Kara, I was I was all goosebumps just just from the yeah. description. It, it really is a life-changing experience. The eclipse is an indescribable sort of thing. I don't think pictures do, you know, can't really do it justice. Describing it as best as you can is, has a hard time get, doing it justice. Yeah. But I will say you this. You have to be there. I will, I will say this. It, it's essentially you're standing on a different planet for those minutes. Mm-hmm. It's a different mm-hmm. world. It just is. It's alien because the sun wow. doesn't yeah. – the sun doesn't – it rises in the east and it sets in the west. That's what we know. That's what we're trained on. And so when the sun is all around you but not bathing you in its warmth and there's a direct nightness overhead and you can see the stars but it's all a strange color. And also, guys, you can't see the moon. That's something that we don't realize. The it's moon is moon. backlit by the sun. Mm-hmm. It's black. It's you, it it's has no moon. features. Yeah. yeah, it's a new moon. That's the right. only way that you can recognize that it is the moon is if you can see well enough to see Bailey's beads because these little po- like little pops of light that come up around the outside as the eclipse is as totality is starting and then finishing those actually represent the craters on the moon that's you know it's an uneven surface that's why they pop out but other than that you can't see it so it looks like there's a hole in the sky well and if you look at the map i think time magazine did one and a lot of other people did coverage of like this is the next you know 10 eclipses or here's the next eclipses for the next 50 years across the united states iran you get like a bunch of them yes yeah there's something like four yeah yeah in australia 
Well, this, yeah. yeah, so that's, I was going to say that you're all invited to Sydney 2028. Awesome. Great. I'm awesome. there. Wow. Yeah, Rod, seriously, you, you should just, you should come stay with me and whatever plans that we have for 2024. I mean, you're always, of course, welcome here, especially since, you know, I'm almost going to be in the, the line of totality or at least within a drive from it. Uh, I, I accept now. Okay, <laughs> you're in. <laughs> Guys. Argentina and Chile get an eclipse in 2019 and 2020. The heck! Wow, yeah, that's, I know that's it's a different slick. path, but Lucky it's not countries. fair. <laughs> it's not fair. Or in 2021, we could go to Antarctica. Wouldn't yeah. that be amazing? Oh Antarctica. That, that sounds like awesome. two in. That sounds like two in one. I know. You know when Connecticut's next total solar eclipse will be? When uh, two two thousand ninety nine. And 2026, it's going to go over the Arctic. It's going to be over Greenland and Iceland. Can you imagine? What if, like, the northern lights were going off during a solar eclipse? I would lose my mind. (laughs) That could be... Are there Aurora reports? Like, do can I don't know anything about Aurora? Can um can we calculate when they're going to occur? No, no, no. Kind of random no it's events. totally random. But gotcha. it's it's they're like based. predicting the weather. You know, maybe okay. you get like a day's notice or something if there's going to yeah. be a lot of activity, and then even it depends. Then, yeah, it depends on some um, on the Earth's magnetic field and on solar activity mostly. But what an incredible random fluke if the sun and the moon align such that the, you know, the moon is 400 times closer while the sun is 400 times bigger and they're the exact same size. And on top of that, there are, you know, northern or southern lights. Like, that would be insane. It's actually not I that want. big a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, you're worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mean for an eclipse to happen? For, no, to have an arrangement where eclipses can happen. No, yeah, but to have it happen over one particular place on the globe is quite yeah. rare. So once every on 375 years, that's how yeah. that's the average. I said one one time at 375 years, any particular spot on the globe will have this total the, solar. The yeah. apparent and, the apparent size of the sun and the moon overlap for about one percent of the Earth's lifespan. Gotcha. So one percent, right. you know. Given that we have a moon, yeah, that's a lot. Know, but yeah, that's a lot. It's not that. It's not as not but as in, astronomical as you might think. In what, like three hundred million years, six hundred million years, we it's won't over. have any more eclipses. Not yeah, to, it's over. Not, the moon will be not total. Yeah, there'll be annular not eclipses. Total. Yeah, always annular. Yeah, it'll be too far away unless we have the technology to pull the moon back. Right? Uh, <laughs> maybe uh, you never know. All right. Well, let's move on with our show, Bob. You're going to start with the forgotten superheroes of science. Yes, for this week's Superheroes of Science, I'm going to talk about Mary Baltz, Tyler, uh, who was the first woman soil scientist in the field for the USDA Soil Conservation Service. Now, you know, I almost gave up on Mary. I I could not find much on her at all. No Wikipedia entry. Couldn't find out, uh, you know, when she was born and when she died. I was just like, well, there's just not enough information out there. And then I said, you know, that makes me want to talk about her even more, even with just the, the little information I was able to find. Somebody had to, had to speak for her, especially after I saw an entry in Reddit. Somebody said, this is my grandmother, Mary Tyler, first female soil scientist touring upstate farms to save America from the Dust Bowl in 1935. Wow. And that's like one of the few pictures I found of her. So, so here's some of the things that I was able to find beyond that. Uh, Mary Baltz graduated from Cornell University. Um, there was a labor shortage during World War II, which provided, uh, openings, uh, for her that normally would have gone to a man. Not a surprising scenario at all. 
Um, she joined the soil survey as a junior soil surveyor in 46. And ultimately, um, as I said, she was the first woman soil scientist mapping all of Madison and Oneida counties in New York uh, by 1951. Eventually, she was assigned the task of map measurement for the entire state of New York and hiring a team of women uh, to help during the, the winter season, uh, d- during uh, the, the period of time where they worked indoors. So remember Mary Baltz. Try to find out even more about her and let me know what you find. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing edifology, pedology, or, of course, hydric soils. Thank you, Bob. All right, Kara, you're going to start us off with the news items talking about the relationship between taking vitamin supplements and cancer risk. Not what you might think. Absolutely. So there's an interesting study that was done um, in the Washington State area. It was recently published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. And the title is Long-Term Supplemental One-Carbon Metabolism-Related Vitamin B Use in Relation to Lung Cancer Risk in the Vitamins and Lifestyle vital cohort. So vital is um, a survey that was given out to individuals, vital meaning standing in for vitamins and lifestyle. And this was a survey that was given out. It was given out to 77,118 participants, so a really big pool of individuals, all between the ages of 50 and 76 years of age. And this survey has a lot of measures on it. So we've got to, you know, hold that in your memory banks as we start to talk about some of the limitations of the study. But it's got a lot of different measures. And basically, it asks people about their vitamin and supplement use and asked about all these different vitamins and supplements. And then the researchers looked at the data that came back from that survey and they were able to link it to data that came back from a a cancer registry in the same area. It, It started in between 2000 and 2002 and I think they followed these people for 10 years. They found that of the 77,118 participants that they gave the survey to, it crossed um, with the cancer registry at an N of 808, meaning that 808 people had invasive lung cancer and had also filled out this vitamin surgery. So they're like, okay, we're going to take these 808 invasive lung cancer patients and we're going to look at their vitamin use and see what's going on with that. And they found that across this 10-year average – Taking B vitamins was actually associated with, and I need to make that firm because this does not show any causality whatsoever, but taking B vitamins, specifically vitamin B6 and vitamin B12, in levels that were significantly higher than what's uh, recommended for your daily uh, dosage, were associated with significant increases in lung cancer risk. Now, here's some interesting components of that. There was no difference in women who took these B vitamins and their lung cancer risk. It only seemed to happen in men. And it was specific to the different vitamins. I have some numbers here that I want to tell you. First, let's talk about how much these people were taking. Men were taking, uh, they looked at the highest dosage group to calculate some of these numbers. So men who were taking more than 20 milligrams of vitamin B6 And keep in mind that the average uh, recommended daily allowance is 1.7 milligrams per day. So, you know, more than 10 times over. Um, They were at an 80% higher risk of developing lung cancer. 
than those who did not take greater than 20 milligrams per day of vitamin B6. And then when it came to vitamin B12, those who had taken greater than 55 micrograms per day, when the average uh, recommended daily allowance is 2.5 micrograms, so again, that's a massive dose compared to what um, is recommended for us to take, they were showing a 98% greater risk of lung cancer. So overall, they were showing a 30 to 40% increase in lung cancer risk among men. Women did not show a significant difference. Now, what we've got to make sure that we point to is the fact that many of these men who had an increased lung, lung cancer risk were smokers. So keep that in mind. But the highest increase was actually among smokers. So we saw an even higher risk when um, an even higher risk of cancer in the men who took a lot of vitamin B6 and a lot of my vitamin B12. And we saw an even higher risk in people who smoked at baseline. So it wasn't just that, oh, it was a sampling error and all the people who smoked happened to have the lung cancer. They even looked at the differences between smokers who took B6 and B12 and, and uh, non-smokers who took B6 and B12. And they looked at the difference between smokers who took B6 and B12 and smokers who didn't take vitamins. And they, they took all that into account. So here's some limitations of the study, though. There's no way to know whether or not there's a causal link here. We know that, right? Because we're just looking at population data. It's totally correlational. It could be that... These people are, knew that they had a risk of smoking, of, of cancer from smoking. So they intentionally took vitamins because they thought it would help fend it off. Who knows? It could be that these people would be more likely to enter into a study on supplement use and take massive doses because we don't have any data on whether or not they were involved in studies. If, if you're, if you're diagnosed with lung cancer, you might be more likely to, you know, do whatever you can if you think it could help. Um, there's just so many different confounds. Um, that could be present there. So that that's one thing. Another thing, and we've talked about this multiple times on the show, it's not intentional p-hacking, but what happens when you run a bunch of different analyses out of the same data? You get a lot of false positives. So there's a chance that these associations are occurring because of chance. And the study authors know that, and they want people to replicate this study. Because when they look back at the literature, they found that the literature was really all over the place. Like there was a, a really um, a big study in, in Europe called EPIC in 2010 that showed that higher blood levels of vitamin B6 were associated with a lower risk of lung cancer. And then in Nor Norway in 2009, there was a big study where they gave doses of vitamin B to patients with heart disease for 39 months and found that it raised their risk of lung cancer. So this is why these researchers were interested in this. What is the relationship? Because it seems super unclear. And in this study, they found that it was a quite a significant relationship. And actually taking mass doses of these B vitamins, specifically B6 and B12, were associated with um, a significant increase in your risk for lung cancer. But this needs to be rec replicated. We need to see if if these data hold. Um, but it's interesting, right? It's a little bit counterintuitive. It's actually so, not, if, but it is very. It's not if you know. Yeah, but, it's not if you yeah. know about the the one carbon metabolism um, pathway. So these researchers would, because here's the question: like, what the hell could be causing this? Yeah. Like, why? If this this is a causal link, which we don't know, we can't say that for sure. Why would taking B vitamins increase your risk of lung cancer? Well, there is um, a pathway. Uh, you know, a biochemistry pathway. A lot of uh, you who have taken biochemistry remember learning about these different metabolic pathways. And this one's involved in both amino acid metabolism, but also nucleotide metabolism. So it actually encodes um, or it actually leads to changes in your DNA. And it um, 
involves these B, uh, B vitamins. Specifically here, it's actually vitamin B12. I'm not sure if vitamin B6 is in the one carbon metabolism pathway. But so the authors are saying, hey, we don't know if this is causal, but if it is causal, maybe these vitamins are interfering with this pathway and causing changes to the DNA that increase the risk. And when you say, yeah, but why would it only happen in men? They say maybe male hormones like androgens, you know, testosterone could have an interaction effect. This is the kind of stuff we want to study now at a more basic um, molecular level. So interesting. I mean, just an interesting finding, but also huge grain of salt with this. And let's make sure that when you come across the headlines, as you undoubtedly will, that say, don't take high doses of B vitamins. Don't drink those energy drinks. You'll get lung cancer. Right. <laughs> that you're like, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. But you let's shouldn't calm down do that. A second. You shouldn't take high doses of B vitamins. Well, yeah, you shouldn't take doses of things over the recommended daily allowance right. anyway. And B6 and has a very narrow range, a re- narrow, narrow optimal range. And, pe- you know, people overdose on it all the time. And not yeah, even and if like, you don't overdose on it, like you could have a high enough level that you're getting some toxic effect from it very easily. You know, some people are yeah. taking a multivitamin, a B vitamin, and then there's so many, it's fortified in so many different things. If, if you have a good diet, you probably don't need to take any vitamins. If you think you might, have your primary care doctor check your levels and supplement accordingly. You know, target your levels. Don't just do it blind. You're likely to be overdosing. <laughs> yeah. Supplements are there for a reason. Like if an individual has a, you know, a dietary, um, like a, a, an allergy and they can't take certain things, or if you're like vegan or vegetarian and you've worked with your, your, uh, primary care physician, like, or, or your nutritionist even. Um, so one of the study authors, Theodore Brasky, was actually interviewed in a, a write-up on this in Cosmos magazine. And the quote, I think, is like really telling. He says, again, to reiterate, the recommended daily allowance for B6 is about one and a half milligrams. And for B12, it's less than two and a half micrograms. Okay, this is the, the standard dosage for men. And here's his quote. But if you look at these supplement bottles, they're being sold in pill form at up to 5,000 micrograms per dose, which is much, much higher than the daily recommended amount. Energy drinks like Monster can carry up to 80 times the recommended daily allowance of B vitamins. Yeah, crazy. That's crazy. crazy. Yeah, it's way too high. <sighs> Steve, at what point do we have to worry about vitamins being toxic? Well, if you take a high enough dose, you know, even though they're, they're nutritional supplements, at high enough dose, they start to act like drugs. You know, and at high enough dose, all vitamins have a toxic level. Some of them closer to their, you know, nutritional levels than others. Yeah, anything does, but it's just a matter of like how much higher than like what you could normally get. But like, as again, like with B6, you could get to toxic levels through ordinary amounts of supplements that you wouldn't think would be dangerous, you know? So, uh, B12, it's a little bit harder, but you can absolutely do it, especially if you're taking things that have crazy amounts, like 5,000 know, micrograms, yeah. which is way more than you, than most people need. Um, so there's just no reason to do it blindly. But I, I would say, Kara, that, uh, there's other possible mechanisms by which vitamins can, uh, contribute to the risk of cancer. Uh, mm-hmm. One is that, you know, cancers are highly metabolically active. They need to be fed too. They need vitamins too. And yeah, yeah so in fact, you know, some people think that we should be trying to starve cancers by, mm-hmm. by making sure that certain vitamin levels are on the low side, enough for you, enough for your healthy cells, but not enough for the highly metabolically active cancer cells. And if you take super high levels of vitamins, you may be just feeding your cancer. Feeding the, the beast. The other thing is that, uh, antioxidants might actually inhibit the immune system's ability mm. to fight off cancer cells because 
you know one of the <laughs> ways that one of the ways that we kill things is with oxygen free radicals and if yeah. you're scavenging them all up with antioxidants it actually could impair the immune system so j- j- just stay away from antioxidants it's not a miracle anything oh gosh there's so many out there though there's so many things advertising it it's like we forget sometimes that we evolved mechanisms. And a lot of times when you look at the drugs and the supplements and the vitamins and the antioxidants and the probiotics that are marketed, there is a reason for people who have pa- like pathological um, uh, physiology, right? Somebody who maybe uh, their their gut is not working appropriately. So their doctor works with them to find the right probiotics for for their gut flora or there are individuals who maybe they have a suppressed immune system. So they have to take certain things. But for most of us, if we're eating the right foods and we're exercising and we're getting enough sleep, our bodies are like miracles. And we we forget how incredibly speaking. good they are. Yes, metaphorically <laughs> speaking. We yeah, forget how incredibly with finely tuned machine. There you go. How incredibly good they are at doing all this stuff. And yeah. lots of times when you when you supplement on top of that, you're just, again, paying for really expensive pee because you're not going to metabolize them and you're just going to piss them out. Or like you said, you're going to take them in toxic yeah. levels. Yeah. And bad things can happen. Yeah. I mean, evolution is especially good at tweaking a system, right? At mm. optimizing a system where all the pieces are in place. So like we have a balance between antioxidants and the need for free radicals and cell messaging and all these things and evolution will tweak that homeostasis and you're not going to make it suddenly function better because you're eating antioxidants. It's not going to happen. Yeah. It was naive to ever think that it would and if anything, all you're, you're probably just going to make that optimized system worse. The only time where the, there's an exception to that, as you say, Kara, is if you have a disease, if your system is actually, is out of optimality for some reason or another, mm-hmm. and you're trying to compensate for that, then sure. Like if you have a mutation where you're not making an, a natural antioxidant or something like that. But if you're, for a healthy person, to think that you're going to game this system that evolution has has had hundreds of millions of years to tweak is a little naive. Yeah. Uh, but that's what all of the, the supplement industry's marketing is based on, basically. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, so speaking of all this, actually, this is kind of along the same lines. Uh, have you guys seen Panera Bread's latest marketing campaign? No. Oh, no. Should I gird mm. my loins? Man, I kind of like Panera. I know. Crap. I kind of like them too. And now it's like I really don't think I can go to Panera. Ron, do you have Panera in Australia? I don't believe so, no. Yeah. So for those who don't know what Panera Bread is, Panera Bread is a it's a restaurant that has um, – you know, it seems it's like it has... It's a restaurant and bakery, basically. It's a bakery, yeah. but it does have a, a healthy kind of Starbucks vibe to it, like a trendy, healthy vibe to it. It's and it's very good lunchy. It's, it, like, it's lunchy. They have them around office buildings yeah. a lot. Like, you can go and get a soup and a salad or a salad and a sandwich for lunch. Yeah, they make a killer PB&J, you know. But- yeah, <laughs> and their soups are epic. Like, their broccoli Metaphor. cheese is really good. Right. Corn, the- corn shower but- it, it came out with uh. this advertisement. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, they went full food, babe, in this advertisement. Really? Oh, I mean, no. Oh, oh, they jumped the shark. They fear monger <laughs> about sodium benzoate. Sodium benzoate oh, is, is a preservative that's perfectly safe. The, and it's in everything. It's in everything. It is, it, and it, it's it, in food, it is at levels which is orders of magnitude less than clearly established safety guidelines, right? So this is a completely 
benign preservative that poses zero health risk. Steve, Steve, but I, I must ask you. Go ahead. But it sounds scary. Yeah, so it, must, it, must it sounds it's <laughs> chemically. It's chemically. Yeah. Sodium something or other? Oh, not good. It's, it's, it's almost as bad as sodium chloride. That has <laughs> chlorine in it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> The, the so, dreaded floor. Dihydrogen monoxide. Yeah, no, exactly. Stop it, stop it. You're killing me. It, you mix. So anyway, so sodium benzoate, <laughs> they show pictures of like a guy in a hazard suit and a, and a gas mask with canisters of sodium benzoate, you know, and they say. Oh this yeah, is you can show that same picture with canisters of oxygen or carbon dioxide. Yes, what right, the exactly. hell? Or liquid nitrogen, also, you know. Yeah. But also, can we take a second to talk about the fact that there's a reason we put preservatives in food? Yeah, it, you know, what do you call it? Preserves <laughs> them. Yeah, it like makes it so that you can have something on the shelf for longer than a day without it rotting. Right. Like, that's important to feed a growing population of people. Yeah, we talked about that. Food waste is like 30%. Uh, preservatives, you know, are one way of, of trying to minimize that. If you get rid of preservatives because preservatives because of baseless fear mongering, you're just going to make the food wastage problem worse. Yeah, Take if you that, buy hipsters. anything, seriously, if you buy anything <laughs> in the grocery store that's in a package, yeah. unless it has a quote-unquote natural preservative like salt, like pickles maybe would have with vinegar and salt, yeah. like it probably has sodium benzoate or some other type of preservative in it. Yeah, this is food science. Ugh. Anyway, so yeah. then they do, this is the food babe thing. They go, sodium benzoate is used in fireworks. It's an explosive. What? <laughs> so it's gonna what? It's gonna either give you bad gas or blow you up. What? Yeah. But Steve, on the, on the positive side, it's not used in yoga mats. It's not used in yoga mats. Yeah, yeah right. Good one. Good one. Mm. Fireworks require oxygen yeah. to explode. You, you could make fireworks out of sodium chloride too. I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> so yeah, chemicals could be used for multiple things. You can combine them with other stuff, and you could make things like antifreeze or or fireworks or yoga mats or whatever. It's all irrelevant. It, it says zero, nothing about whether or not it is safe in that one form in the amounts used in food. Nothing. So they completely food babe fear monger about a completely safe uh, preservative, sodium benzoate. Then they have their no-no list. No-no list of things that will never appear in any of their food. And it's just a bunch of normal stuff used for uh, for food production, right? It's all safe stuff. They even have mm -hmm. caffeine on there, though they say caffeine added, not naturally occurring. So naturally occurring caffeine is okay, but they won't add any extra. Oh my right? gosh. Oh, wow. And then they it have vanilla, right? Vanilla and synthetic only. So the natural stuff is fine. They have that on a number of things. Anything, if it's naturally occurring, it's okay. But if it's synthetic, then it's poison. What? Yeah, so they've gone full food, yeah. babe. Very disappointing. Because yeah, I just I don't I just don't know how I could go there again. That's so depressing. Nope. Yeah, that's pathetic. Don't they? Shouldn't they have science advisors like movies? I think they don't care. Come on, I, they, seriously. They're, yeah, you would think they're, you think they're making they food care. though for people to eat. Like that's so scary. They don't have a single scientist helping them with this. I think there's a disconnect between the marketing, you know, branch and their science department, right? I yeah. mean, the, oh, yes. mar the marketing people don't care. There's no way they don't have food scientists uh, working. Yeah, of course they so do. you're right. Yeah. It's just happening downstream. Well, where like, are the food scientists in these corporations standing up? Yeah, but Evan, think about it. I mean, it's like two completely different departments I get in, in a very big company, you know, and they're yeah. sitting there inventing, you know, new recipes and coming up with new food items and doing, and then they're like, wow, the marketing team is totally blowing it. 
what can we do about it? Well, let's talk to upper management. You know, and upper management's like, well, we're making the money. You know what I mean? Like, it's that's I know that's a very simplistic way of looking at it, but in essence, those you know those food scientists can't change the company that easily. I'm sure they might. I'm hoping they're saying things, but it's not working, and we know that they're there. I mean, I would I would consider walking out. I mean, my company starts doing that that I work for. If I'm a food scientist, I'd be like, guys. I mean, you, this is ridiculous. I'm out of here. You know, I've been trying to take as many people with me. Well, the thing is, we are seeing this disconnect in pharmaceuticals as well, uh, where the marketing people uh, want to promote certain uses that maybe are not completely supported by the studies, and um, and the scientists generally fight quite hard not to have that done, but marketing very often wins. Yeah, but in pharmaceutical industry, at least here in the United States, the FDA has very strict limits on what the marketing uh, department is allowed to do. They can't freewheel it. They have to they have to strictly follow FDA guidelines and if they don't, they get fined sometimes billions of dollars. I mean, they can mm-hmm. it's big 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 fines from the FDA. So, uh And think about it, even in in such a highly regulated industry, you're still seeing that how they're trying to stretch it to the extent that they can. They're still pushing the envelope. They're pushing the yeah. limits. Absolutely, but there is but there are lines there at least. Uh, but yeah, in the food industry, no, there's no nothing similar. There's no strict regulation. Like the package insert is literally what the company can say about a pharmaceutical drug. But the uh, there's not there's no equivalent of that. You know, with sandwiches. Um, <laughs> there's no sandwich packages. But anyway, this is it's funny. This is old school, though. This is old school marketing. You fear monger mm. about your competitor, and you don't have to name your competitor. You just create this vague fear in your target audience that everyone other than us is going to feed you poison, but we're mm. not going to feed you poison, right? So you don't even have to say that other companies are doing. You could just doing it. You just imply it. You say, "We promise we will never have this harmful chemical in our product," right? Mm. I, di- I didn't say that other people have it in theirs. I'm just implying that it's unsafe and implying that. <laughs> other people have it you create this vague fear and then people go well just to be sure i better buy that guy's product that's this has been going on as long as i've been alive right this is nothing oh new. gosh edison and tesla this happened yeah. to you know a <laughs> long time ago all right anyway let's move on evan yeah so you're going to tell us about the chinese uh radio dish that's the largest radio dish in the world uh it is in fact uh, one of the, uh, one of the largest it has a specific uh type to it which i'll get to in a second so just last year china's massive radio telescope which is named fast began its three-year test run and this telescope has the distinction of being the world's largest filled aperture radio telescope yeah there's actually one telescope larger in uh russia which uh, we won't talk about in this new segment. But so certainly it's second largest, it would appear to be. But this particular type, it is the largest. Now, FAST is an acronym, right, Bob? Yes. It stands for 500 Meter Aperture Spherical Radio Telescope. 500. 500 meters in <laughs> diameter. So I'm going to put that in, I'm going to put that in perspective for you. So that's the surface area of the dish built into a natural basin in the ground. And the surface area of the dish is 48.5 acres. Whoa. So think of your neighbor's farm wherever you are. Wow. That is huge. 48.5 How many acres. hectares is that? Uh, is it what, there's <laughs> two hectares in an acre? Is that what that is? I, I don't recall. Evan, how many quad loads <laughs> would it take to buy that? 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> Jay, I was thinking the same thing. What are you guys saying Jay? right now? What are you talking about? Do you mean hectares? What is happening in my brain? Hectares. <laughs> how many how many furlongs is it? Stop it. It hurts. <laughs> all right. How many um, fortnights would it take me to walk all the way around it? I you know, can they still <laughs> say Fortnite in England. Do you guys say Fortnite in Never. Um, Australia? In New England? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, you yeah Iran, that's a normal thing they do in, in fact, England. So in fact, my, my favorite uh, unit of measurement uh, ever is the smoot, which you could look, look it up, look it online, uh, <laughs> look it up online, and and you can use smoots in novel ways such as the speed of light in smoots per fortnight. <laughs> wow! Oh my Smoots gosh! Per That's cool. One smooch is equal to Oliver Smoot's height at the time of the prank: five feet seven and inches. Oh, that's hilarious! This is a non-standard humorous unit of it's length. A, yeah. a hectare it's is two point four seven one acres. By the way. Oh, gotcha. Forty-eight point five acres is the size of this dish. <laughs> Back to fast. Now, uh, if you want to get an image in your mind, what it looks like, the basic design of fast is similar to the uh, Arecibo Observatory radio telescope. And if you remember, that's was featured in the movie Contact. I love that movie. The Arecibo Observatory is in the early part of the movie where Dr. Ellie Arroway goes to use it to search for alien life. So very cool. Uh, they are uh, this type of telescope. They are fixed primary reflectors installed in natural hollows, like a basin, made of perforated aluminum panels with a movable receiver suspended above. That's the basic way to describe how it works. And as I mentioned before, it's going to take three years to calibrate the various instruments so it can become fully operational. And once it does, it will require hundreds of astronomers to operate it at full functionality. Very cool. A few things that FAST is going to be doing will include pulsar observations, detection of interstellar molecules, studying dark matter, and my favorite, detecting interstellar communication signals. So this thing is amazing. Very cool science. But it's making headlines this particular week because sources close to the project are expressing a concern. Well, as Admiral Akbar once famously said long ago, it's a trap. Yep. It's a, tur- <laughs> it's a tourist trap. And maybe using the trap is, word trap is a little too harsh here, but However, it is a not-so-insignificant reason that this project was undertaken in the first place to generate tourism to this region of China. And they have succeeded in doing so. It has become one of the top tourist destinations for all of China. What? And that's Yeah, no, it is. I saw it in the top five list for the year, for 2017. Top five attractions in China. That's fantastic. Uh, I mean, a, you know, a scientific installation being a top attraction, tourist attraction, sounds pretty awesome to me. It does. It, it does sound awesome. But there is a negative component to all of this because the astronomers are concerned. Too much tourism means too much interference, mostly electromagnetic interference from things like cell phones, Wi-Fi computers, and a whole host of other sources capable of interfering with the fragile signals that the scientists are trying to collect from outer space. Deep outer space, by the way, as far as 11 billion light years outer space is what we're talking about. So here comes a signal from a proto-galaxy 11 billion light years away and suddenly, hey, Ma, it's me on FaceTime. I'm up here on the telescope doohickey thing. (laughs) You can imagine it interfering with the signal like we're in the middle of some important scientific uh, data collection that would be it would be awful. But um, actually, most of the tourism is coming from within the country. So people from China are actually flocking to it. That that makes up the bulk of the tourists. Uh, for example, during the 
Dragon Boat Festival on May 30th. About 220,000 people crowded at the dish uh, wow. around the site in the mountains. Quarter yeah. million. Quarter million people. Yeah. And uh, over the course of the year 2017, they estimate 10 million tourists will be drawn to the attraction. Now, a cell phone signal, they say, is a billion, billion times more powerful than the cosmic waves that a telescope like FAST is going to try to detect. And this small town, which was purposefully chosen because of its sort of remote air area and, you know, general quietness to it all, uh, they've opened 46 hotels and 100 restaurants to cope with the tourism. So it's becoming... Wow. It's, it, it, there's, there's a potential for problems here. Now, some scientists are saying that it probably won't be a problem. They can deal with it because it is, of course, pointing straight up uh, into the sky and... The direction of that will not, you know, be directly, won't get direct interference, say, from the Wi-Fi and the cell phones and these sorts of things. But they don't know because this, uh, they didn't know that this volume of tourism was actually going to be happening. So they're encouraging more environmental studies or environmental impact studies as to how this is possibly going to affect the readings and things that they're going to be getting. And uh, a lot of scientists are concerned they really want that to happen sooner than later. Yeah. Evan, do you know if this is different to what's happening with other major radio telescopes around the world? Well, only in the sense that the amount of tourists that it has attracted seems to be kind of off the charts and you really can't, doesn't seem to compare to, to other regions. I mean, they do get tourism, certainly, at some of these other large telescopes or arrays or whatnot, but I don't think they're, I don't think they're, uh, they have the same sort of volume that they're experiencing with fast. I'm wondering whether it could be something to do with the telescope due to its sheer size being more sensitive because for example, there's no, uh, there's the, I forgot, the uh, Jodrell Bank. Uh, there's a very large radio telescope in near Manchester in the UK. Uh, I don't think they even have signs there or anything that says, no mobile phones. I think this, they don't allow mobile phones out in the field in front of the telescope or near the telescope. In uh, Tidbinbilla near Canberra in Australia, there's a major radio telescope installation. What is the word the, you just said? Canberra? It's the, it's the name of the place, Tidbinbilla. Tidbinbilla? Uh. Yeah, that's oh, the I name of that. the... I love that. Yeah, so they were part of the... Uh, they are part of NASA's uh, deep, um, deep Space Network, in fact, I was there a few years ago as it was uploading instructions to Spirit on Mars. Cool. It was, was really low on the horizon. It was sending instructions to Spirit. So, um, And there, it's in a valley uh, surrounded by mountains. So it's kind of isolated from the environment. Right. And in, for probably about something like 15, 20 kilometers before you get to Tidbinbilla, there's signs, very big signs, every every few hundred meters, saying, switch off your mobile phones, don't kill our research. <laughs> now, what's interesting, so these really, really large dishes are basically built into the ground, and so they're fixed. You can't move them like a dish on a tower, you know, that you could move around. You can't, but you but they do move the uh, the internal portions the of receiver, the... The receiver, yeah. The receiver itself can move, and the... Um, plates that they create in the dish, part of it towards more towards the center, uh, are able to be somewhat tilted in certain directions to help 
uh, gain the, the yeah, proper so th- direction that they want to pick up. Yeah, that's true of the fast one, but not Arecibo. So Arecibo is a spherical reflector that's fixed. And they so because it's spherical, it could focus in many different locations. And so they just move the receiver around to where they want to focus. The mm-hmm. fast one apparently uh, can – they could change the shape of it so that to, to change where it focuses as well as moving the receiver. Fascinating. Yeah. So it's a more updated, I guess, than the, than the older Arecibo one. Right. The money the tourism is bringing into this area of China is not insignificant. Um, yeah. You know, and certainly enough to, to pay for a lot of these things and try to, you know, do things like hire better astronomers to yeah. come in. They're They'll having have to, a, they, they should make like a tourism day. Like, all right, Mondays, the scientists are off, tourists can come, you know, stomp around <laughs> with their cell phones and their selfies, and, you know, and, but then Tuesday through Sunday, no tourists. They ought to do something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Some compromise is going to have to be reached yeah. to, uh, you know, because what the hell? Why have the thing if it's not going to work correctly? <laughs> you want, you want. I, I mean, it's great to it's great that people are interested, but at the same time, the science has to get done. Absolutely. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, Blue Apron. So we've talked about it before. You guys by now should know what Blue Apron is. But in case if you don't, it is a meal delivery service. But the meals are uncooked. They're ready for you to do a nice home-cooked meal with your family. And what you get is everything that you need. So no trips to the grocery store. You've got all your proteins, all your carbs, all of your seasonings, all of your sauces, and they're pre-portioned. So it makes it really easy. You also get a beautiful full-color, step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card. So even somebody like myself with very minimal, I should say, culinary Skill. <laughs> can, you, can you boil water, Kara? Is that the problem? Yeah, I'm, I make a mean bowl of cereal. But with Blue Apron, I mean, <laughs> I cooked like yakisoba. I was very impressed. I think the cool feature about it is it's $10 per serving per meal. So, you know, family of four, you're, it's only going to cost you $40. That's a lot less than going out to a restaurant. And plus, it's home cooked. So, you know, the quality is much better. So go ahead and have a look at this week's menu and get your first three meals for free. That's free with the shipping. By going to blueapron.com slash SGU. That's blueapron.com slash SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Bob, Bob, when you sent me your news item, Bob said, cyborg bacteria. Need I say more? (laughs) 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 Kind of rally. What's going on? Yeah, it's, uh, I saw those two words in the, when I was scanning news items. I'm like, yeah. Cyborg bacteria, yeah, I'm going to talk about that. It almost doesn't even matter what it's about. I'm going to have to cover it, <laughs> cover it just for that title. So chemists have created a hybrid organism. It's using a hybrid. Bac- it's a hybrid <laughs> using bacteria. And- That's my line, Steve. <laughs> you relate to You're slow. You're slow. <laughs> Too much of that Kentucky bluegrass. <laughs> so, it's a hybrid. Uh, it's a hybrid using bacteria and non-organic crystal solar collectors on its surface. And if that wasn't enough, these nano collectors are more are more efficient light harvesters than plant photosynthesis and can be used to convert CO2 into a host of valuable chemicals. How crazy awesome is that? These uh, little bits of awesomeness were created by uh, chemists P. Dong Yang and Kelsey Sakamoto, uh, who presented their work recently at the National Meeting of the American Chemical Society. Did you know that the American Chemical Society is the world's largest scientific society? 
It I is. I do now. I didn't know that. Yes, it, according to my sources, it is. So now it's a no-brainer to some people anyway that we need to move away from fossil fuels for both the production of energy yeah, sources yeah. and as and as a kind of feedstock for the creation of these important chemicals. And uh, to that end, artificial photosynthesis has been attempted for years uh, to achieve this. Never quite, you know, still working on it, still got a ways to go. And this one uh, looks pro- more promising than most anything else I've seen uh, in the in the realm of biofuels anyway. Uh, very fascinating stuff. Pidong Yang said, the thrust of research in my lab is to essentially supercharge non-photosynthetic bacteria by providing them energy in the form of electrons from inorganic semiconductors like like cadmium sulfide that are efficient light absorbers. So to achieve this end, they start by feeding uh, these non-photosynthetic bacterium, uh, and they're called Morella Thermoacetica, um, they feed the, these bacteria certain compounds that actually allow it to synthesize cadmium sulfide nanoparticles into these semiconductor nanocrystals around the entire microorganism. Uh, so basically what I, that all that mumbo jumbo means is that, that each bacteria is essentially covering itself with nano solar panels and then using that energy. That's what they're doing. But that's not even the really awesome news. The really awesome news is that, uh, first off, that this process is, is being described as self-replicating and self-regenerating and a zero-waste technology. So that's one. I mean, once you set this up, it pretty much, you know, these uh, solar collectors are pretty much uh, continue to be created um, for the, you know, for all the, the replicating bacteria. And uh, But even more impressive, the energy efficiency is a whopping 80%. Now, Steve, I found some discrepancy in terms of how much of an improvement. 80% is damn high, but one source was telling me that that's four times more efficient. But your article was saying that, that photosynthesis using chlorophyll is basically only, what, 3 to 6% efficient. Yeah, that was a reference I found, 3 to 6% okay. efficient. But we could, I could double-check it while you're talking. Yeah, but it's still it's still many times more efficient than than anything we've seen in terms of things that are found in nature. So just with a little sunlight and water, what happens is that these bacteria basically breathe in carbon dioxide and exhale acetic acid. That's that's essentially what's going on. So and now, so this is a hybrid organism, and they they're calling it uh, Morella thermoacetica CDS for cadmium sulfide. But personally, I think they should call it Morella thermoacetica cyborgus. Come on, it just, just rolls off the tongue. It just rolls off the tongue a lot more easy, good, good easily. Good point, Bob. So, so now acetic acid, you might be thinking, well, what the hell is that? It's a wonderful chemical. Um, it, it's kind of like this foundational chemical you could use to, to upgrade into any number of amazing compounds like fuels, pharmaceuticals, polymers, other kind of commodity uh, chemicals, and um, all of this from sunlight. And uh, but also through the use of these complementary genetically engineered bacteria, you would still need these other bacteria to uh, you know to kind of uh, bootstrap the, the, that acetic acid into into these other more more valuable compounds. But it's still you know it's still using a renewable resource that pretty much is running uh, mostly on on sunlight. Um, so in the future, we're going to now uh, they're going to look for some more benign light absorbers, more benign than cadmium sulfide. Uh, to provide the bacteria with energy from light. The cadmium sulfide can cause some, some downstream, uh, products that you might not want, some, some toxi- toxicity levels and things like that, I think. But other questions, though, are important to think about, though. Uh, you know, can this be scaled up and industrialized, as Steve said in his, his blog post? That's huge. And often you see small, small scale miracles that just won't scale up and, 
that's it. You're done. You know, if you can't scale this kind of thing up, it, it just makes it so much more limited. And then there's other problems like the attenuation of light. So you can't have these deep, deep vats because the light's just not going to get all the way down there. So you're going to need these really big, shallower vats. And, uh, you know, how is that going to affect, uh, you know, scaling this thing up? Um, also, uh, distillation may require a lot of energy. You know, you're not going to turn on a spigot and have this acetic acid come out that you could then, you could then, uh, you know, manipulate into, into other compounds. You know, you're going to have to get that stuff out of there. You know, what kind of problems and inefficiencies and expenses are that going to introduce? You know, we're still not sure, uh, precisely what, what that's going to be. So this is something that does look amazing. And I think just generally speaking, the, this whole idea, of taking bacteria that have evolved, you know, over, over millions and billions of years, you know, and some bacteria, remember, these were the first life forms. Um, you know, extremophiles are, are called extremophiles for, you know, a very good reason. They are extreme. They do extremely crazy things that, with their metabolisms that no, that no other organisms can do. By the way, I was just, I was double checking, you know, there was several sources say, yeah, three to six percent is the efficiency of photosynthesis. Okay. I actually found a paper that calculated the maximum efficiency of photosynthesis under, using chlorophyll under optimal Use- conditions they they oh. estimated it to be 8 to 9% that's like with as good chlorophyll as it, you mean it just says well photosynthesis i just think using not necessarily just using um a photosystem to you know reduce co2 and uh use oxygen to produce oxygen you know they said that right. thermodynamically has a maximum efficiency of 8 to 9% oh there you go so they're over there in so it, for what they're, you know, specifically doing, they're much more close to a maximum yeah. than you would think. Yeah, right. All right, I feel better about nature. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of biofuels because we don't have the land. You know, I just think that that's a bad plan to use land to grow fuel when you sure. know we're, we're we're already pretty much at our maximal land use. But having vats of bacteria, yeah, that that might be viable. Um, it yeah, it, it all depends on how this scales up. If it's of any anything other than just a niche, you know, curiosity. Right. One cool thing is that you could turn acetic acid into butanol, and you could burn butanol in yeah. your, it, like gasoline without right even, now, right without now, even modifying the engine. Yeah. So anyway, interesting. And we know that most of the stuff we talk about never going to come to into existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, absolutely. Just because there's so many competing possibilities, but it is interesting that this kind of thing is possible. You know, we're engineering bacteria to grow solar cells on their outer surface. Cool. All right. Hey, Ron, you're going to talk to us about a very interesting item on uh, the the outcome of children raised by same-sex couples, which apparently is a controversial topic. Well, it's not directly uh, the, the, the topic. It's just something that's being used politically. Uh, currently, Australia's legal definition of marriage limits it to one man and one woman. It is not, uh, as many people think, a traditional or long-standing legal definition. It's something that only changed in 2004. And wow. over, over the years, there has been an increasing pressure on governments to allow same-sex couples to marry with surveys in Australia showing approximately 70% of the population supports marriage equality, as does a majority in every single age group, although obviously, as expected, older voters were less in favor than younger voters. The only groups that consistently have a majority against marriage equality are older voters of conservative parties and those with strong religious views. And of course, there's an overlap between these groups. 
unfortunately the, due to just the political circumstances haven't been favorable and uh, the uh, politicians have not been on the same page with public opinion I don't want to go too much into the politics of it because it's not particularly interesting to anybody outside of Australia. However, it's now likely that there will be a plebiscite about whether to change the law and allow uh, same-sex couples to marry. Uh, and while it's not strictly speaking a vote, both sides of the debate want the, to get their message across and convince as many people as possible. Unsurprisingly, religious organizations have been at the forefront of objecting to same-sex marriage for years and they're leading the charge now too. Many of their arguments are moral in nature, and we really can't, uh, we can argue with them, but not on a scientific basis. But since they also want to appeal to those who are not swayed by religious arguments, they put a lot of focus on outcomes for children with same-sex parents, because that, obviously, everybody wants to protect children. That's got nothing to do with what your views are. Think you will always want children. to protect children. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and sometimes they try to present scientific research that supports their position. One, one such example is a 2015 paper titled Emotional Problems Among Children with Same-Sex Parents. The lead author of that paper is um, a professor at the Australian Catholic University. His name is Paul Sullins. Professor Sullins is a Catholic priest uh, who has written papers along the same lines in the past. A particularly nasty poster that uh, is titled Stop the Fags cites uh, some statistics from, the, from this study um, in, as its arguments. They say 92% of children raised by gay parents are abused, 51% have depression, and 72% are obese. I, don't, I think these numbers sound unlikely on the face of it. However, let's look at it from a purely scientific perspective. There is a problem. This paper was published in an Egyptian open access journal that has been criticized in the past for its lax peer review, and by saying lacks, I'm probably being a little bit charitable based on what I've seen. When the paper was actually reviewed by academics in social sciences, they found major problems both with the methodology of the paper and the way conclusions were derived from the data. This paper is probably, and this poster, are probably one of the most egregious examples of using bad science in support of a position in this debate, but it's not the only one, and unfortunately it's probably not the last one. The reality is that there does not appear to be any scientific evidence that children of same-sex parents fare less well than children in other family circumstances, but that doesn't stop campaigners from using scientifically sounding arguments to promote their view. And just to be fair, I want to point out that it is not limited to the no side, the use of uh, unscientific arguments, uh, but of course uh, this is a particularly egregious example. This problem is not specific to marriage equality, it's not specific to Australia right now, and of course we've seen it before, using science, bad science in a political campaign, uh, and the, result, the devastating results that can result are something that we've seen before, for example with climate change. We know that very often changing the status quo is quite difficult, and all that's required from those who want to keep the status quo is to make to sow just enough doubt, just enough fear amongst the population to make sure that f people don't want things to change. They don't have to conv convincing for a change is much harder, and requires a much more profound approach. At Australian Skeptics, we are now working on a paper that will summarize the claims on both sides and assess the evidence for and against those claims. And we can only hope that the public will not be swayed by the bad science in the same way that uh, it had in past debates.
Yeah, so I do think this is one of those situations where the science itself is actually not controversial, right? No. Yeah, so I, mean, I, well, looked, well, I did a little background research on it myself, and you know, the multiple recent systematic reviews basically see, yeah, there's been 30 years of research into this topic, and there's an overwhelming consensus that the kids raised in same-sex couples are just fine, that there's no adverse outcome. No, in fact, in, in fact, any differences, the, the, any differences are very small, but any differences generally tend to be in favor of children of, uh, yeah. You know, of yeah. Uh, same yeah, sex yeah, parents. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yes. Yeah, but, you know, again, uh, the problem is that the status quo is that same sex marriage is not allowed and change is always hard. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's enough to sow a bit of doubt. You use bad signs, some nasty t- headlines, and uh, that can have an effect. But it's very easy to cherry pick the science that you want, you know, even if it's published in a crappy, you know, pay for play, you know, Egyptian journal conducted by a Catholic priest. Yeah, I actually found, you know, that that poster, uh, it said 51% of children of same sex couples have depression. I was like, do you think your your headline, uh, you know, must might have something to do with it? <laughs> well, they, plus they didn't say what the percentage of children in different sex couples have depression by the same measure, right? So just saying that doesn't even say anything. What, what's the background rate, you know? What yeah, are you comparing compared to it what? To? Compared to what, yeah. So we, without, without saying that, that's like inherently deceptive. Yeah, you, you said that thing about like a certain percentage have obesity, and I was like, a lot of kids are obese. Like that's a epidemic regardless of who your parents are. No, I think we, I think we can even – let's assume that we agree that these numbers are high. That ninety-two percent, yeah. Regardless, regardless of how of what the paper says, ninety-two percent abused. That's very high. Fifty-one yeah. percent have depression. That's high. Seventy-two percent obese. Yeah, that's high. Is that because high? Even if even if we accept it all is, of it, the, is high. E- it is okay. All even right. if we accept, days. but even if we accept that it's poor science, it's out of context. There's so many reasons why these numbers are. Yeah, but that's just part of it. They're not putting it into any kind of context. It's just a big scary number. Yeah. Basically. All right. Thanks, Haran. Okay, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time. Okay, guys. Last week I played This Noisy. Any guesses? That's that uh, creature that came from outer space that wanted to talk to the humpback whales in Star Trek <laughs> 12 or whatever it was. Yeah. I think that was Star Trek 4? Four? 4, yes, it was. I actually yeah, thought there be whales a, here. Yeah, I thought it was a baby whale that's mistaking a submarine for its mum. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This, uh, this was sent in by a listener named Frederick Cassette last week, and uh, or Cosette. All right, so we did have a lot of people email in some guesses and one of them was a flute in a cave and I'm like after re- re-listening to it with that in mind I'm like you know that's an interesting an interesting guess it's not that bad of a guess at first I'm like a flute and I'm like no it does kind of sound like someone like trilling on a flute a little bit but that is not correct um, and then somebody else thought it was a, a didgeridoo which I thought was interesting I object that, yes but anyone that that has 
really heard a didgeridoo or, or played one. I'm a huge fan of the didgeridoo. I have one. Steve has one. We 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 play them. That's not a didgeridoo. Um, but I did get a um, a very very good explanation from a listener who guessed correctly, and that was John Setterfield. And John said, um, he said this is called the apprehension engine. Anybody hear of this? Nope. No. Mm-mm. No. Okay. Well, the winner actually for this week was Jerry Gulhirme. My God, I'm sorry I pronounced that wrong. <laughs> but he just wrote in um, a couple of details, so I will list. I will list what the other person actually wrote. This is the apprehension engine, an instrument used to create musical scores for horror movies. Whoa! And, and the reason why I thought I would mention this particular listener is he, John, said that his brother-in-law or his wife's brother-in-law is the guy who invented it. Oh, so, cool! So he wow. was okay with being automatically disqualified because it's almost a family member. Um, <laughs> this thing is really cool, guys. So this was invented by a music com- composer named Mark Corvin, and he wanted to make an instrument that can sound or make sounds that are fitting for horror movies. And then he noticed um, that nothing existed to really get the, the feel that he wanted. So he thought maybe he can get involved with making it himself, and he ended up working with a guitar maker named Tony Dugan-Smith, and together they... They come, came up with the apprehension engine. So it has several bowed metal rulers, spring reverbs, and several long metal rods, and other sorts of attachments. And then when they're properly played, they can make these incredibly fantastic sounds that set an intensely creepy mood. And you know, if you listen to it, and I just played a very brief segment of all these different kinds of sounds that that this thing could make. You know, they have to properly reverb it, of course, and everything to really give it some depth and some atmosphere. Um, But it does, indeed, this thing makes really scary, creepy, like something, you know, around the corner, monster in the basement type sounds. I love it. So, Bob, I thought, you know, Halloween is coming. It's never too early to give an early shout out to Halloween. Um, (laughs) I'd be interested for you to listen to like a YouTube video of this and, and tell me what you think about it, Bob. Sure, man. Absolutely. So, good job, Jerry. That I don't. Not many people wrote in guessing it, so I don't think that many people know specifically what it is. So, excellent job. Okay, I have a new noisy for you guys this week. This noisy was sent in by Steve Harris. Steve, you know Steve, right? I do know Steve. Steve's a longtime listener and supporter of the show, and he thought, "Hey, let me send in something." Now, this is uh, he didn't exactly say this, but he's saying. Um, in essence, a lot of people that listen to the show should know what this is, and you may recognize aspects of this, but I want, as usual, very specific answers to what we're listening to. So when responding to this noisy, give me a very, very specific answer to what it is. You can email me at WTN at theskepticsguy.org with any cool noises you heard this week and the answer to this week's sound. Thank you, Jay. All right, Kara, what's the word? Ooh, the word this week is a fun one. It's really a holdover from last week. Oh, Kara, you did it. What? A listener wrote in and said, every week Kara says this one is fun. The week that he wrote in, you didn't do it for the first time. Are you serious? And yeah, I, and I'm like, remem- I never saw that email. Good that coordination, so Kara. 
funny. Yeah, oh so then God. I'm like, she doesn't say it all the time, huh? Yeah, but but guys, this one actually is really fun. It's fun to write. It's fun to say. And the Perimeter Institute even posted a like a meme about it during Eclipse Week about how it's like a great Scrabble word, but the only way you can use it is if the extra Y is a blank. Can you guys guess which word I'm talking about? Syzygy. Yes, there you go. Syzygy. Um it's such a fun word, word guys. S Y Z Y G Y. So syzygy is actually the the term that's used and I didn't include this in my list of eclipse terms last week. What was oh. I thinking? Oh. This is the term for when three celestial bodies line up. So if more. I three or more, yeah, but that would be probably even more rare. But let me look at the specific uh, definitions from Oxford and from Merriam-Webster, both of which are talking about astronomy definitions. Oxford says a conjunction or opposition, especially of the moon and the sun. So um, they're kind of just saying two, but I think they mean in relation to the earth and just sort of left that out of the definition. And Merriam-Webster says the nearly straight line configuration of three celestial bodies, such as the sun, moon, and earth during a solar or lunar eclipse in a gravitational system. Interestingly, Oxford also has a second definition definition, which is just a pair of connected or corresponding things. I'm assuming that's a little bit more of a poetic definition or a literary definition, because I could definitely see somebody saying that, you know, all of these events were aligned in syzygy. And that means that, you know, everything worked out just just in a perfect line or something. But when you look at the etymology of the term, it is a Latin term from the 1650s, or it actually goes back later in late Latin, but that Latin is adapted from Greek, which, which is pretty common. From the Greek, um, I'm not going to pronounce this right, but syzygia, which actually means a yoke of animals, a pair, a conjunction, or even a union of two. Syzygian or syzygine, or gyne, I'm not sure, can actually be broken down, which, which meant to yoke together. It was a, it was a verb, can be broken down into cis, which is an adaptation of the prefix syn, which means, you know, together, like synthesize, and zygon, which means yoke. So really, this word evolved out of the idea of yoking things together. You guys know what a yoke, like yoked cattle or something like that. So yoking things together. And if you think about it, it just extends to this idea of these heavenly bodies, in essence, kind of in a in a in a more uh, metaphorical sense, being yoked together and and causing this alignment. And of course, we wouldn't have an eclipse without syzygy. Syzygy is the point of the eclipse. It is aligned such that the sun, which is four hundred times larger than the Earth, is behind the moon, which is four hundred times closer. So they look like they're the same size from the Earth. It's that perfect line phenomenon. Kara, you know when I first learned the word syzygy? When? In 1982, born. right, Bob? Yep. And why is that, Steve? So that was yeah. after the eclipse in 79. So why was it? No. Because in March 10th of 1982, all of the planets in our solar system were within about a 30-degree arc on one side of the sun. Yeah. No, they weren't. That's yeah. crazy. The yeah. And, and the world didn't end? And the world <gasps> didn't end. But of course, there was all kinds of rumors. This is pre-internet, so they weren't on the internet, but it was still... They were like there, books. There's going to be earthquakes, and the earth is going to end. But no, like the obviously the, the 
gravitational effect of the other planets is negligible compared to the sun. Um, well, yeah, and we saw that a lot during the eclipse. I thought it was really funny. A lot of the questions, and you know, there were some naive questions that were sent in, which were smart and interesting. Like, does this affect the tides? Does it? But when you really think about, it, like, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, this thing's going to happen." Like you said, an earthquake, or there's going to be tidal waves, and it's like, no, the sun is where the sun is always. The moon is where the moon is generally. They just happen to be lined up. Like nothing the, is the different. tides were higher. Because they How were, much higher? They were sure. perfectly – they could be – they were they were significantly higher in some locations. It depends. Really? Yeah, because they, they were – because they're perfectly lined up, they're – the tidal And the gravitational effect of the like sun. Constructive interference. It yeah. It's, it's Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, without the moon, we'd still have tides. And they'd be greatly attenuated, uh, but they'd be solar tides. But but our, But the moon and the sun are very closely aligned from a tide perspective – all the time? Uh, every, every new moon. Every new moon. Oh, That's yeah, correct. Yeah. Every okay. new moon. That's okay. great. This was just slightly more in line, so that gave bigger tides. The effect could be could seem out of proportion, even though they're only slightly more in alignment just because of the way tides work. It actually is measurable in terms of the peak peak. Oh, I didn't realize. I figured yeah. it would be negligible. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's when we learned that word, syzygy, 1982. Yeah. How fun. Did. Yeah, it was fun. I'm and glad you didn't use that for science fiction, Steve. I'd have got that wrong. All right, guys. One email. I couldn't resist this one. Okay. The question comes from Conrad from Fargo, don't you know? <laughs> That's why you couldn't resist it. <laughs> Fargo, uh-huh. North Dakota. And Conrad writes, clearly farting makes you have less mass, but does it make you weigh more or less? Figure this would be a good question for the show since farts are always funny. Always. <laughs> so... That's the question. I put that to the panel. If you fart, do you lose weight because you have expelled mass or do you gain weight because you have lost the buoyancy of the gas inside of you? What do you think? Oh, my God. Um, I don't know how much methane weighs. So Methane still doesn't weigh negative weight. Well, but it could be buoyant <laughs> in air. That's the thing, right? Buoyant in air. Oh, yeah, because we're not talking about mass. We're now, talking in about a vacuum, weight. in a vacuum, it wouldn't matter. You would lose exactly. weight, right? If you were in a vacuum, you'd lose because there's no buoyancy. You'd lose mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd lose weight as well. If you were in a vacuum chamber on Earth and you farted, you would lose weight because <laughs> there's no buoyancy. That's true. There is still weight because of gravity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, okay. but in so let's say at sea level, you know, one atmosphere <laughs> of pressure, and you let out a good toot. Did you? I mean, it's probably going to not be that much, but theoretically, would you have gained or lost weight? What do you guys? What's your vote? Lost. I think you lose weight. I mean, with the volume of farts that I have, it's got to be a weight loss. <laughs> no, it would have to be a gain. <laughs> I would think gain. Well, it is a gain to the surrounding I area. Think, I don't think or it do has think to be. In my mind, it doesn't, it doesn't have neutral. to be anything because you're expelling so little mass, but you're also losing so little buoyancy that it's like at that level, Bob, it can go, go we're saying, either way. It's saying it's negligible, but which which, which way does it go, though? Yeah, so yeah, if you are on the coin. most sensitive so, scale. Like, sir, is methane, oh, Bob. You, Steve, you can't <laughs> suss it out. I, I can't suss it yeah, out. you can. Suss it out. Go ahead. Super you absolutely super. can. Suss it. You absolutely can. Can you give us some indication as to whether methane is lighter than air? Okay, so – You've hit upon one question that that gets to the answer, and that is the density, right, of the various gases mm. that make up flatulence compared to the density of air. Air so is mostly nitrogen. I've only heard methane mentioned, but methane 
is not necessarily the only component of flatulence. That's true. What do you think flatulence is made out of? Well, I thought it was okay, mostly there's methane. Def- if there's methane, is is there like CO2 in it? There's CO2. Is there nitrogen? There's nitrogen. Ooh, I'm good is at this. Is there a little oxygen? Is there helium? <laughs> there's no helium. About, I wouldn't about, think so. How about little crap, oxygen, I crap think. particles? I, I wonder what a helium fart would sound like. <laughs> <laughs> it would be adorable. I, I need to know. <laughs> um, that needs to be a who's that noisy is a helium fart. Okay, right. so we said there's oxygen, there's CO2, there's nitrogen, and there's methane. Well, we didn't get an okay on oxygen. Oh, is there no, oxygen? No, there's negligible no oxygen. oxygen. Yeah. Okay, negligible. CO2, nitrogen, methane, and I assume we're still waiting on something, so give us a hint. Give us a so, hint. So it's clearly variable based upon um, Diet. what you've eaten you know, and, and your and, and your, your bacteria. gut bacteria, and your yeah. gut bacteria, and how much air you've swallowed. So mm-hmm. nitrogen is the main component. It's like twenty percent to ninety percent. So there's a huge variability there, depending on how much wow. air you, how much of it is wow. gas produced by bacteria versus gas you've swallowed. Then methane, you've hit upon hydrogen. Hydrogen gas is made by some bacteria. Hydrogen. Uh, Nitrogen. There is some oxygen, again, based on if you're swallowing air and it's mainly swallowed air, there will be some oxygen, but that oxygen has probably largely been metabolized too, so that's a small right. component. Carbon dioxide could be as high as 20%, 20% carbon dioxide. Hydrogen wow. sulfide. So and then there's a lot of other things that, yeah, that add to the smell, but don't necessarily contribute a significant am- amount to the volume. So by volume, it's nitrogen, carbon dioxide, methane, hydrogen, and maybe a tiny bit of oxygen. So in that case, yeah, so it's, it's heavier. In that in that case, that would be heavier than air because if it's mostly nitrogen, like air, and um, carbon dioxide is a significant component, basically equivalent, roughly equivalent to to the oxygen that we have in the atmosphere. Yeah. And carbon dioxide is heavier than oxygen. That's correct. Then it would be heavier than the fart would be heavier than air. Yeah. So Iran is correct. It's it's heavier than air. Um, oh. Because it's because of the carbon dioxide, because it's mostly nitrogen and carbon dioxide, and that's nitrogen is again the same as air, and carbon dioxide is significantly heavier than oxygen. Hydrogen and methane are the ones that are lighter than air, uh, mm-hmm. but you have them like ten to twenty percent, you know, so it's not enough to make it lighter than air. There's one other factor though. So there's what it's made of, what's the density of the gases, and the third one is what's the pressure that the gases are under. And I couldn't find the answer to that question. What is the air pressure inside your colon, basically? Huh? Uh, that's, hmm. Yeah. So by, I imagine it's higher than one atmosphere, but not that high would be my guess. But it probably adds a little bit to the overall density as well, right? You could think about it this way. How explosive are your farts? <laughs> I love this conversation. Oh, yeah. Right? The more explosive they are, the higher pressure they were under before they came out. But I also love that we're like on this science show talking about all of these nerdy scientific components, yet we're still calling them farts. Or flatulence. Mm. flatulence Actually, the fart uh, is sort of the, is the sound. The flatulence is the gas. Ah. Really? Yeah. It's, it's flat. It's like flatus. Isn't that flatus. how they use it? Where they, flatus. Yeah, so gross. Yeah. <laughs> flatus. 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 With the flatus. Lady with the flatus. So at least, see, there's one thing. One thing has clearly been achieved by this uh, discussion right now is we got to talk about farts. That's you know, yeah, as, exactly. The, as the reader, as the listener said, it's always funny, as they <laughs> intended, obviously. And 
So the the other bottom line is that when you fart, you lose a little weight. So I love that. Toot it up if you're trying to lose weight. Yeah. <laughs> toot it up. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Conrad. Well, a couple of announcements before we go on to science or fiction. So next weekend, we're going to be at Dragon Con. Yeah, baby. Uh, we are going to do a live show from the stage on Sunday at 4 p.m. Uh, but also, we're going to do a private recording. These are always fun. They always sell out. We've sold out everyone that we've done. A private recording, basically $75 per person. You get to join us in a small group while we record a show. It's very interactive. A lot of fun. Uh, so if you, that's going to be Saturday night, 10 p.m. The location is to be determined. We have to basically find out where we could set up when we get there. So if you're going to Dragon Con next weekend, just uh, con- – and you want to go to the private recording, email us. Uh, you know, contact us. We will tell you how to to send us the money. You can, of course, you could pay for it on site. Uh, once we're there and we and we have the location, just we'll email us again. We'll we'll tell everybody we have on our list where the location is. It'll be a super secret, so only us will be there. Again, that's that will be Saturday night at 10 p.m. We usually have a special guest, which we will sort out once we get there. So. Uh, but the, but it'll be the whole SGU crew plus probably an additional person. Again, these are always tons of fun. Um, and Iran, you have a couple of other things coming up as well. Yeah, so there is the European Skeptics Congress on the 23rd and 24th of September in Wroclaw in the southern part of Poland. And um, there will be many great speakers. I'll be speaking as well. Um, so great speakers and me. <laughs> we also have our own Australian Skeptics National Convention, which happens every year. This year will be the 33rd consecutive one. Uh, I believe we are by far the oldest skeptical convention in the world now. And that's happening on the weekend of 18th and 19th of November in Sydney. And Kara, you'll be there. I will. Yeah, I'll we'll, be there. I'm so excited. Yeah, we're looking forward to having you there. And there will be many other great speakers. Uh, you can look, look online. It's, it's, it's uh, dubbed Skepticon 2017. You can look it up uh, and uh, find more information about it. Also, one last thing. Our, our next live streaming event is happening on Sunday, September 17th at noon Eastern Time. Uh, we will be live in our studio with a, a video streaming event. Uh, the content is to be determined. We'll be jo- joined on that event by George Hrob. So mark your calendar, seven, September 17th, Sunday, 12 noon Eastern time on our Facebook page. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics, skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. But this week, they're all fake. What? Yes, that's correct. Him? The theme this week is internet hoaxes. Ah. So two of these oh, gosh. are actual hoaxes, and one of them I made up. Oh, no. So one is a fake <laughs> fake. The other two are real fakes. So you have to tell me which one I made up because the other two were actually spread online as if they were real. Got it? Okay. Yep. All right. Here we go. <laughs> Item number one. NASA is predicting that in November there will be 15 days of complete darkness. Item number two. The L.A. Police Department 
plans to spend $1 billion on jetpacks for their officers. And item number three, a killer goose the size of an ostrich menaced visitors to Isle Royale National Park in Michigan, killing three people and has yet to be captured. Okay, <laughs> Iran is our guest. You get to go first. Yeah, I noticed that um, Bob always feels free to make noises when there's guests because he knows he won't be first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, and Kara just very, always forgets. Very good. <laughs> Yeah, always. (laughs) So, first one. NASA is predicting that in November there will be 15 days of complete darkness. This sounds like the kind of thing that absolutely nobody would fall for. So, it's probably a real hoax. Uh, The reality is that there's enough people in the world who will just fall for anything. Uh, So, people might try something outrageous. Uh, The LA Police Department plans to spend $1 billion on jetpacks for their officers... That sounds like something that somebody would want to freak people out in terms of your tax dollars at work kind of thing. That actually sounds like a plausible kind of hoax, plausible in the sense of that somebody would try to do this. And a killer goose the size of an ostrich menaced visitors to Isle Royale National Park in Michigan, killing three people and yet has to be yet has to be captured has yet to be captured. Oof. Look, my, my tendency is to think that the first one is just too far-fetched to be a real hoax that somebody would try to perpetuate on the internet. However, why would you put something so obvious there? I'm going to just have to guess. I, my inclination, just looking at it logically, it would probably be number one. However, we're talking about hoaxes. I would say that the second one you made up. The LA Police Department. The LA Department. Police Department plans to spend $1 billion on jetpacks. That's the fake fake. Uh. Fake fake. All right, Kara. NASA's predicting that in November there will be 15 days of complete darkness. Makes no sense. The LA Police Department plans to spend a billion dollars on jetpacks for their officers. That's ridiculous. Killer goose the size of an ostrich menace visitors to Isle Royale National Park in Michigan, killing three people and has yet to be captured. Ludicrous. Um, they could all be hoaxes. That one's like super weirdly specific compared to the rest of them. Maybe that is telling me something. Maybe it is not. I think the fun thing to do, guys, is to all pick something different. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to go with the killer goose because that one is like, I don't know. It just makes me happy. Okay. As for the fake fake. (laughs) As the fake fake. Okay, Evan? I have a feeling that... Uh, the goose one is a is genuine is is science in this case. Uh, killing three people that might throw you off, but you know, hey, animals kill people all the time in weird ways, so I'm not surprised. It's between NASA and the 15 days of complete darkness, or the billion dollar jetpacks. Uh, it's probably the jetpacks one that is the fake. Two reasons. Number one, people are generally, I think, overall kind of bad at science, so they're more likely to fall for a 15 days of complete darkness kind of thing, not understanding how things really work. Whereas a billion dollars on jetpacks, you know, a billion dollars, that's a lot of money for a local police department to do any, any, anything, Steve. I think you made that one up. Okay, Bob. 
And yet, these same people are wi- are willing to go <laughs> and be okay with a killer goose the size of an ostrich. <laughs> Something that <laughs> a billion dollars exists that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, but do you know how big I, an ostrich is? Yeah, believe any shit. I, um, what size Bob, is a baby ostrich? Bob, people, thank you. <laughs> Next case, Bob. Do you have evidence um, that it doesn't exist? <laughs> yeah, right, the black goose, right? Well, um, let's all remember here what we're talking about. Yeah, that's a black swan. swan. We're talking about <laughs> made-up things. So whether Steve made it up or someone else made it up, it's a little hard to discern. Yeah, I mean, you just got to go with your gut on this one. So I'm going to say... But two of these, I'm saying, it's not just that somebody made them up. They were spreading on the internet. Right? They were spreading. <laughs> exactly. They were trending somewhere. Somewhere. Right. So, right. Exactly. They've got they got to have spreadability. You know what I mean? There's got to be a little bit of spreadability in there. So the NASA one, I think, is spreadable because, you know, it's astronomy. Like weird, sh- weird shit can happen. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, the police department, yeah, those damn liberal police spending a billion dollars on something silly like jetpacks. I could see them. People believe in that. People, you know, they kind of just like uh, kind of gloss over the billion dollars. And the, here's a police department doing some crazy shit. But a killer goose, the size of an ostrich, I mean, I don't think that has legs, so to speak. Uh, you know, but, you know, but hey, I'm just riffing here because people will believe any, come on, look what we do for a hobby, guys. And any of this, any of these could be surprising could go anymore. Way. But I'll, I'll want to go with Karen and say that the ostrich one is the fake fake. Mm-hmm. And Jay. All right, Bob, first of all, this is not a hobby. It's a <laughs> lifestyle choice. <laughs> I actually think you're. Yeah. I was born, born this way. way. <laughs> yeah, right. What was that, Ron? I was going to say exactly. Uh, the same waiting thing. for that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We all thought it. It's um, environmental. All right, so I'm I'm kind of agreeing here with what everybody's saying because all this is just utter BS. But 15 days of complete darkness. Yes, I would believe that because. You know, the eclipse and everything and people, you know, darkness is on everyone's minds. And, you know, I could see this being something that people on Facebook would kind of like scroll through and think is interesting, but not really go, how, what, you know, what's happening, you know. So, okay, that one is, uh, what would you call something that is not true, Steve, but believable? And I don't want to use the word cromulent. Do we have another word? Plausible? Nope, it's cromulent. Spreadable. Go with what I said. Spreadable. All right, that's spreadable. Thank you, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like butter. <laughs> That's inspreadable. Uh, inspreadable. <laughs> this one, now this is where I have to pull the I'm Steve's brother card and say, I don't think Steve would come up with a billion dollars being spent on jetpacks by the LA Police Department. I just don't see him making that up. But he, Right, but he would make up the ostrich goose yes that's bob that's what i'm saying but that third one man the killer goose one that sounds like steve novella i gotta go with the killer goose that just got that stinks of steve novella that stinks of steve (laughs) so nobody nobody picked nasa all right let's start with that one then nasa is predicting that in november there will be 15 days of complete darkness you guys all think this one is a real internet hoax and this one is science in that it's fake. That pissed me off. I read two articles on that and I was cursed. It so was, that, when or, was it? it was, is it now? It was beyond, beyond the beyond. It was like, <laughs> it are was you serious? Amazing. Let me, ex- let me explain to you the logic behind this, it, which is like, 
It was ridiculous. First off, Venus and Jupiter are, are going to have a close approach, which I calculated to be a half a billion miles. That's the that's like a close approach between Venus and Jupiter. Because remember, it goes Mercury, you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter. So Venus is, you know, not the next next door to Jupiter. So it's really far away. But then, Forgot but then Bolton. the article kind of mixed that up with um with a with a visual separation you know, in the sky, which is which of course is completely meaningless because just because they're close in the sky doesn't mean they're close in space. So they kind of mixed that up. So for some reason, the light of Venus, which is going to be so high on Jupiter, it's going to cause Jupiter to erupt hydrogen, okay? Hydrogen that will then somehow make its way to the sun, which will then cause the (laughs) sun to explode when it hits its surface. A part of the sun will kind of like explode away, which will change our sun into like a it will change the color of our sun, making it kind of bluish, which is which is, is which is so ridiculous. Mad. It was just all <laughs> gobbledygook. It sounds all. Oh, it was something that made that it it broke laws of physics. It broke laws of logic. It broke laws of observation. It was just like on so many levels, you know, just not even close. And I can't believe it. This is like I've I've come across this multiple times. Like, come on, this is just too too stupid. This originated in 2015. <laughs> this isn't the first time this is coming around even. I uh-huh. I remember this from a couple of years ago. Really? I don't remember it, but yeah. I was like, oh my but God. But remember, Great. guys, remember that every now and then the rumor spreads around that on Mars's close approach, it's going to look as big in our sky as yep. the moon. Uh, right. Yeah. That's, how, that's how astronomically illiterate I some wish. people are. That would be amazing. And it usually that happens. Would be amazing. And the funny oh, thing is man. that it usually happens around the middle of August, uh, because in 2003, around the middle of August, Mars was indeed very close, and that's when it came out. This yeah. that that's when the email was spreading, and every year, like clockwork, comes out, even though it's got nothing to do with Mars' current, lo- current location. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That was a fun one. Let's go to number two. The L.A. Police Department plans to spend $1 billion on jetpacks for their officers. So Evan and Iran, you think this one is the fiction. Everyone else think this thinks this one is science. And this one is – Say it, say it. Science. Yeah, baby. <laughs> yes. Guess who reported this as real? Drudge. <laughs> Breitbart. Uh, Breitbart. Please. Breitbart. Fox News. Fox News. No yep. Close enough. Yeah. Because it, <laughs> it fits their narrative. Yeah. But they, of did, they did what? retract it like an hour later. It took them an hour to figure out. I mean, I'm sure they got tons of phone calls and said, ah, no. This Whoa. is a total internet hoax. They were hoaxed by. They didn't even lie and say they were hacked. No, no. Oh, they, were, they were, they were they punked by they the Weekly World News. Which oh, my gosh. Forget it. T- yeah. So is that is that as, the a, as opposed to the usual source of the National Enquirer? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> which is which is only a semi joke because the National Enquirer is owned by a right wing you know guy who you know supports Trump and is right there with yeah, Fox yeah. News. You know they actually are on the same side of things. But anyway, uh, yeah. So that was that was just that was tabloid. This is not really tabloid news that then became viral, and. Uh, partly because of Fox News and because it fits a narrative like, yeah, police department wasting money on this harebrained scheme to have their officers flying around on jetpacks. I mean, it's ridiculous. would be cool, though. <laughs> so all of that means oh, that a killer goose the size of an ostrich menaced visitors to Isle Royale National Park in Michigan killing three people and has yet to be captured is is a fake fake, which I made up out of whole cloth. I didn't base it on anything. I just made it up. 
Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So uh, how the hell do you know Isle I Royal looked National it up. Park I just looked, in I Michigan? I said, okay, I, so, I have so, to look up okay. a plausible sounding national park. So I just looked up <laughs> national parks. Like that's a good remote island in Michigan that nobody goes to. You know, that'll be good. That's perfect. So I just use that one. Steve Novella instincts have been. Yeah, yeah. You brought, you got to totally played the brother card on that one, Jay. Well, I mean, <laughs> hey, really, if you got to do it, you got to. Had it. you all over it, Steve. It had a bird in it. Right. Hey, Jay, that's a good there. point. <laughs> The thing is, that one is humorous. Like, there is a joke in there. It's not like, you know, oh, a billion dollars on jetpacks, which is like sci fi cool. That yeah. one is literally like, humorous, too. Could you just picture the scene that Steve painted. <laughs> just, just picture how did it play out? How did this killer goose kill three people? Like, did it get on top of them? Did it rip its brain out through their eye socket? Like, Gooses what? are assholes. Have you ever, they will bite you. They are yeah, mean. Yeah, they're mean. They're really mean. Steve, They'll peck you to death. Steve, you know what I'm waiting for now? I'm What's waiting. That? I'm waiting for a photo of a giant goose the size of an ostrich, eating, <laughs> eating, <laughs> eating, oh, eating out, out of your bird feeder. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that some feeder? listener out there will Photoshop for that us that for us and send. Did it you in. guys realize that there was? We stayed in Airbnbs in um, Oregon, and all the crew stayed in this beautiful Airbnb that was basically a big ranch, and they had alpacas. And I cool. got to go pet an alpaca. Did you realize that alpacas are like waist high? Really? Uh, Who's waist? Yeah, I, I, I was like, oh, it's like a pygmy alpaca. And she was like, no, this is just a re- regular alpaca. Uh, and I was like, no, alpacas are big. And she was like, no, those are llamas. <laughs> no. Okay. And I, I had no, no idea. It's, I've, I've, there are multiple uh, alpaca farms in Australia that I've been to. And they have llamas and alpacas. And there's not a huge difference in size between them. These were tiny and they were full grown. And I said they were pygmies. And she was like really adamant that I was wrong. That's strange. I'm pretty sure I've seen alpacas. Mm, now I got to get to the bottom yes. of this. Let me see. I'm looking up alpaca on Wikipedia. Oh, they even have their own Wikipedia. It's called Alpaca Pedia. Yeah, look, alpaca, two point seven to three point two feet. Ah, nice. Two point seven to three point two feet tall. They're tiny. That's to their head. That's to the withers. What's a withers? To the wither. Is that their? The, I think that's their shoulder. Maybe shoulder. Right? Yeah. So shoulder, waist yeah. high to the shoulder. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, they're little. It's like a heck. It's like a Hector or a furlong. I know. We gotta add that. <laughs> withers squared. Uh, <laughs> withers are the highest part of a horse's back, laying at the base of the neck above the shoulders. Highest. Yeah. I can never measure them in oh. hands, like they measure horses. You'd think that that would be a yeah. How many hands oh. high is it? Right. Oh my hands gosh! High. How many stone does it weigh? Yeah, that's right. Ugh. They are camelids. Camelids like camels and llamas. Oh, they're so freaking cute. I'm going to send you guys a picture right now. They are. They are cute. <laughs> I still insist. I still <laughs> insist that there's nothing like smooths per fortnight. <laughs> uh, no, you, get, you got good. us there around. That, that one's darn good. Tough to beat Oh, there's that a pictures of a shorn <laughs> alpaca. They look like aliens. <laughs> awesome. they do look, they like a naked mole rat. Skinny necks with this huge bobbly head on top. It's a, <laughs> oh, Kill it. Kill it before now. it breeds. Kill it. Oh my God, they're hilarious. <laughs> Plug shorn alpaca into Google and be rewarded. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Evan, sometimes I regret the fact that this is audio only, you know, but whatever, we make do. I know. Evan, give us a quote. <laughs> Life is an unfoldment, and the further we travel, the more truth we can comprehend. To understand the things that are at our door is the best preparation for understanding those that lie beyond. Hypatia of Alexandria. Yeah. 
Yep, she was amazing. A mathematician, oh, yeah. astronomer, inventor, philosopher, and of course the curator of the library, the last curator, right, of the Library of Alexandria. The last one. Uh, yep. Killed by a mob. Killed by an angry Ugh. mob of, of anti-intellectuals, whatever. <sighs> but, Terrible. Uh, yeah, Changed yeah. the course of history. But she's she was tr- she was fantastic. Bob, she ever make it into your forgotten superheroes of science? Ooh, I don't think so. All right, put her on the list. Put her on the list. Get her on there. Get her on the list. All right, hey Iran, thanks for joining us. This was yeah, a lot of man. fun. Yeah, man, that was great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, we're planning on. Should we even say this? We have tentative plans to go back to Australia in 2019. Oh boy. Yay. I don't know if this makes it official or not, but those those are our plans. I'm sure we'll work something. Force the hands, do you? Force the hands. Yeah. Stay tuned. We'll, we'll, we'll work it out <laughs> one way or the other. We will. But it's always good to see you guys from down under, our friends from halfway across the world. It's always great yeah, to I, see you. I miss, Aust- I miss Australia. You know, there's always and a place for you to stay if you come over. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, thanks, oh, yeah. Ron. I'm, I'm totally we'll be- going to bunk with Iran when I go down there. Yeah, yeah me too. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Oh, this was fun. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.